0: that was love my husband came put this box up here for me to stand on used to try to put me in it (laughs) he's taking taping this as evidence i'm a grateful al and my name is chink coming to the meeting tonight I told Eddie I thought that I'd quote a little poem that I had written. (laughs) And after he had gotten control of the car again, he suggested (laughs) that I just tell my story and uh, tell a little bit of how it was and what happened the way it is now and throw in a little bit how good he is now. So that's what I'll do. Um, Seriously, though, I think Al-Anon is the beginning of a new life for me and I think that AA is a plan that saved Eddie's life through a higher power and that higher power in our home is God I've always been a very domineering person I was an only child and um, I was born in East Texas in a small town and I had a tall handsome father an easy-going father And I know now that he lived the AA program 24 hours a day, and he just didn't know it. He was a man, I never heard him use profanity as long as I was at home. I know that he believed in God, and I know that he would correct me on things that I would say or do. He'd set me down and talk with me, and I'd listen to him. And I always wanted to be like my dad. I remember when he died that the minister said, here lies a man that has no enemies. And I thought, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. I wish I could have people think that about me. And my mother was a good person. And she had a wonderful personality. She had a nasty temper. And she was short, not fat, pleasingly plump. (laughs) And guess who I became more like every day? So I decided that my mother was so domineering and watched over me very cautiously. I had a certain time, hour, that I had to be home, and I didn't like to be told when I was on a date that I had to be home by a certain time. But if I wasn't, I had to stay home for a week or something, I was always reprimanded about it. So I decided right then that when I became 18 or when I finished out at high school that I was going to get married and get away from my mother, and this I did. I married a boy from Kansas City, and we were married four years. And I knew that this was not right, that I did not love this man, and so I got a divorce. I came to Norman and worked um, at South Base as a cashier during World War II. And when that closed, I came on up to Oklahoma City, and a friend of mine that uh, I worked with introduced me to a real tall, good-looking fellow, I thought, and this was Eddie and he hasn't talked to her since. <laughs> Seriously, though, we went together for six months, and then we decided that we were going to get married. And I thought, you know, this is great. This is the greatest thing that's happened to me. And we were married at Sherman, Texas, and like you've heard me say before, when I stood before that minister and we were married, I thought, God, really latched on to something here. And 15 years later, I knew I had, but I didn't know what. And I don't know where Linda is, but I heard her speak the other night, and she was talking about uh, wanting to live in a beautiful little home, you know, with a fence around it and everything. I thought when Eddie and I got married that we were going to have, I was working and he was working, and I thought we're going to have all these material things that I want, and we're going to have this big, beautiful home, you know. And so we lived in a three-room garage apartment, and we paid child support. And this wasn't the way I thought that it was going to be at all. Um, we had parties and we went to dances and we had people into our homes and I became acquainted with booze and it was beer first. And this didn't bother me too much because Eddie could control drinking, I thought, at first, and he did real well. And I, I'm not a prude, but I just never cared for liquor. And, um, But I noticed that the more that we attended these parties, the more that he drank. And when it started to really begin to bother me was when we'd start home from the dances and I'd be driving and I'd look over and he'd be asleep. And he'd tell me, I'm just resting my eyes. But I had a hard time getting him awake, you know, and getting him in the house. And I thought that this was what I had to do, was to wake this man up or help get him in the house. Honey, put your arm on my shoulder and we'll go in the house together so the neighbors won't see us. And so this is the way we did. You know, I, I have tried all, all the ways that some of you al have tried to stop the alcoholic from drinking. And I've tried a lot of ways that some of you people have never thought about to stop the alcoholic from drinking. I've had the flu, so y'all have to excuse me just a minute. Talk about shaking, Eddie. I got it worse than you have. But some of the things that I tried to uh, get Eddie to stop drinking was, you know, I'm working hard eight hours a day, and you're working too, but when I come home, I don't have to have that drink, and I don't think that it's necessary that you have to have that drink when you come home. Um, But this didn't work, and we'd get into arguments, and I decided I won't talk to you. I'll just treat you like a piece of furniture or something, and I'll go on about my business, and I'd tell him, though, I'm not talking to you for a week. And I wouldn't. And he enjoyed this. <laughs> because he would come in and give me that little silly, you know, grin, like a lot of the Almonds know that these AAs have. And he'd smile at me, and I'd sit there, you know, and my gut was just turning. And I'd want to say something to him, and I'd think, no, you can't. 's <laughs> <Day's> just Wednesday. <whimsy. laughs> He'd go to the liquor cabinet, fix his drink, and come back and give me that little silly smile again. And, oh, God, I could have killed him. (laughs) And I'd go on like this. But, you know, I'd torment myself I would not give in. I wouldn't say a word to him. I'd go to bed at night night, and I'd cry. I cried a lot. And um, then I'd try, like I said, I'd try crying. And I'd tell him how much I loved him. And he agreed with me. He thought that I ought to love him. (laughs) And uh, then I'd become angry. And then I'd use profanity at him. And I'd really come out with profanity and I called him every name in the book and go in the bedroom and sit down and cry because I didn't mean that at all but it just come out and then I was working out at the hospital and some of you've heard this before I was in the emergency room one day and I saw a little boy come in that had taken an overdose of aspirin and they put a teaspoonful of epicac in his and a coke and gave it to him and this boy was so sick And he did heave for a long time. And the idea struck me. Larry, you're laughing. (laughs) The idea struck me if I could get some EpiCac in his whiskey, that would stop him because he would think that he was going to die. I know he would. So I'm not saying how I got it, but I got a tall bottle of EpiCac. And I took it home. I left a little early that day, and I went home, and I poured out a tall glass of Eddie's bourbon, put the EpiCac in it, and i shook it up blend perfect you couldn't tell the difference and when eddie came home that night he's in and he was shaking and he said you know i've had a hard day today and i've got to have a drink and i said honey i know it you go get it <laughs> and so I sat down and he relaxed you know that recliner and took a great big swig of it and i'm standing there you know wondering when it's going to happen and i didn't have to wander long because just like that boy he was up out of that recliner had his head up threw up on the curtains down on the divan into the hall and into the bathroom and I'm running behind him saying Eddie hold your head down <sighs> now, I'm sincere I mean I was so sick and he was so sick and I was saying Eddie please hold your head down <laughs> and so I don't suggest this because unless you got a good mop and a lot of rags and a strong stomach we not only went through this one night we went through it two nights and the second night we had company and um uh, jacqueline and johnny came over to see us and eddie said uh, fix us a drink and i said eddie you know i don't like to fix drinks and you know the alcoholic always has that extra bottle and so he had another bottle up in the cabinet and i went in there and i was thinking oh dear god if i can just get him that bottle again you know with the epicac and just get the other two and the phone rang and you know, I was always a victim of every plan that I ever programmed out. And I had Eddie answered it, and then he said, Honey, it's for you. And I went in there, and I was thinking, Oh, I know he'll get those bottles. Well, he did. He went into the kitchen. But you know, the alcoholic, he poured that bad bottle out, fixed it for him, and he got the other one and finished it off. And Jacqueline and Johnny got the two drinks that had didn't have the apicac in it, and Eddie got the bad one again. And we're sitting there, and Eddie takes this drink, And up he comes again and their eyes popped open and I'm looking at him and I'm saying Eddie hold your head down (laughs) and I thought oh you know I'll never do this again if I just get rid of this one bottle (laughs) and so he was in there and his face was red and and I'm thinking oh he's gonna die and the thing popped in my mind if he dies you're going through some questioning And I grabbed that wash rag, and I started washing his head, and I helped him to bed. And I went back in, and I told Jacqueline and Johnny, I said, you know, that liquor's going to kill him. I said, he's just drinking excessively. And they agreed with me. And (laughs) And they agreed that I should get out. And I went through this process, you know, of saying, Eddie, I'm going to leave you. And I filed for divorce, not once, but three times. But I watched it, and before it came time for it to be fine, I'd call him, and he'd come home, and we'd talk things over, and we'd get back together again. And then I decided that what he really needed to do was quit his job down at the sheriff's office. I thought, you know, get him away from down there, and everything's going to be fine. And so I, that was on Sunday. Monday, he quit his job and came home. And I said, hey, what in the world happened to you? And he said, well, you want me to quit, I quit. And I said, God, we've got house payments, we've got car payments, we've got utility bills, we've got all this stuff. What do you mean quitting like that? He said, you don't know what you want. And, you know, I didn't. I wanted him to get away from down there, and yet when he quit, that wasn't what I wanted at all. Um, the next five months really got rough. He was home, and he was free to go get the booze, and I was at the hospital working. And I was scared to death. I called... Um, AA, and I, uh, one morning, and I asked him to send two men out, two. I wanted to bring two men out to get my husband sober. And this man, it was Bill, and he said, um, does he want to be sober? And I said, no. I said, he's passed out. I want him sober. <laughs> and I said, I've gone just as far of this as I can. And he said, honey, there's a program, and they call it Al-Anon. I said, what's Al-Anon? And he said, this is a program that's for the non-alcoholic the spouse and said you sound like you could use it and I said let me tell you something and I gave him a five-minute dissertation of what the situation was it wasn't me it was Eddie and I slammed that phone down and I went into the bathroom and I stood there and looked at the mirror and I cried and I thought what in the hell is wrong with you what's wrong with this whole house this is not the guy you married and you're not even the person that you were when y'all married everything's falling apart what's wrong and I had this brilliant idea again I always had ideas and they didn't work out too well but I went back and I dialed AA again and I tried to change my voice (laughs) I tried to tell him that I had a friend that had a husband that was an alcoholic and I knew there was an Al-Anon program but what was it and where was it and I know Bill knew that he was talking to the same sick person and he said honey We'll send someone out to pick you up if you don't want to go by yourself. And I said, I don't, but I'll go. And he sent out a dear friend of mine, Betty J. And she came and took me to Al-Nine meetings for six months. And those six months I went for one thing, to get Eddie sober. I did not care one thing about these 12 steps. And when I saw the three, five, and six step, I said, "I I do not want any part of it. Because the God that I knew was not a loving God, I didn't think. I didn't realize that all these years that he had had patience with me and a lot of tolerance and love and understanding. And I didn't want anything to do with these steps, and, they, and the only thing that I saw was but for the grace of God. And why that would hang to me, I don't know. But in um, my younger days, I had to go to church, and I had heard the Lord's Prayer, and I had taken part in youth groups, but I didn't. I resented it because my parents didn't go with me. And I just didn't want any part of God. I didn't think that after I had grown up that he had done right by me. So I, I went for uh, six months to al and Eddie didn't get sober. And I dropped out. And things got worse. And so um, I had made up my mind finally that, you know, I'm going to file for divorce, and this time I'm going to go through with it. And during this last time that I had filed for a divorce, my mother died, and I had to take her to Texas for burial. And I know Eddie called me and wanted to go with me, and, and I hate to even think about it, but I told him where he could go. I wasn't no part of him. And all the way down there, I never thought about my mother. I was thinking about Eddie. And I was thinking about the situation that we were in. And you know, God gives us strength to go through anything you can never convince me different and when we got down to this little town in Texas I buried my mother and went through this real good and I felt a relief and I felt a presence of God there and I came back and I called Eddie again and I said I want to talk it over with you one more time and he came back and we thought we'd try to make one more go of it and I told him, I said, Eddie, I'm going back into the program at Al Anon. And he said, that's all right. I'm not an alcoholic. You go ahead. And so I went back into Al Anon, and this time I went for chink. And they told me that I had to work these steps. I had to study these steps and the slogans, and that I would ask for help of a morning, just like an alcoholic, and for guidance, and that I'd thank him at night. And this was a little hard for me to do at first, but it got easier. I worked out at Baptist Hospital and one morning I was going to work and it was cold and I got out of my car and it was about 7.30 in the morning and I felt pretty good because when I could get away from Eddie, things went pretty well for me all day. It was just when he was drinking and I had to sit there and look at him that I would begin to get these feelings. But I got out of the car that morning and I locked the door and I pulled my coat up and started walking towards the access road. We had to park down by the Warwick apartments. And there was a man that went across in front of me, and he was about six foot two. He was taller than my husband and much bigger. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and we just kept walking. And I had my head down, and when I looked up, this man was coming at me. He had pulled a stocking cap over his face, and he had a gun, and he hit me right in the pit of my stomach. And I closed my eyes, and the first time I ever said, God help me. And then I opened my eyes, and I said, hi. And I don't know why I said hi. I just said hi. And he looked at me, and he said, come on. Let's go back down here. And I very calmly said, no, I'm not going with you. You take my purse and my car, but don't hurt me. Don't do something you're going to be sorry for later. And here I'm talking to this man with a gun in my stomach. And he said, come on. And I said, no, I'm not going. And he shoved me back. He started running down south in the parking lot. And I got my purse, and I started walking. And I got about middle ways of that parking lot, and guess what came into my mind? Yea, though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Thou art with me. And he was. I got the message real quick. I understood right then that if God could take care of me that quick, and nothing hurt me, and he was with me twenty four hours a day, that I should step aside and let him have a chance to take care of Eddie, that I was doing a sorry job of it. And I began to release Eddie with love and not hate. I got the message. I didn't completely stop trying to uh let go of Eddie. I every now and then, you know, you'll just kind of build yourself up emotionally, and you just got to help just a little bit. You think maybe God's, you know, kind of helping somebody else, and maybe he doesn't have enough time for this guy, so you'll take over. And every time that I did, things went haywire. But I would watch Eddie sit in that living room, and I'd see him going down physically and mentally, and I couldn't take it any longer. And one day, I just blew it. Man, I mean, as you'd say, all hell broke loose in our home. And we had a knockdown dragout, drag-out. And I was sicker than Eddie was. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to the liquor store. I'm going to buy you liquor. I'm going to bring it home, and I hope you drink yourself to death. And that's exactly what I did. I went to the liquor store. I bought liquor. I brought it back, and I gave it to Eddie, and I walked out of that room. And he drank. And Eddie said, you know, he said, the compulsion to drink. He said, I had the compulsion to drink, and being without liquor scared me worse than facing death, and that I believe. I went in the bedroom, and I sat down, closed the door, and I couldn't think. I was just like a dummy, just sitting there. And I don't know how many hours I sat, but I finally got into the bed. About 2.30, I heard something fall, and I asked Eddie about giving this tonight. He said, it's fine. And I ran into the kitchen, and Eddie was in a convulsive state, and I'd never seen this happen before. And for one minute, I looked at him, and I said, I hope you die, you son of a bitch. But the next minute, I was on that phone screaming, Eddie, screaming for the operator, get me an ambulance. My husband's dying. When they left with him, I dressed, and I went out to the hospital, and the thought comes back to me again. This time, you've got him. This time, you'll get him in the hospital because you worked there. The doctor will admit him. 30 days later, he'll come out and y'all live happily ever after. It didn't work that way again. I went into that emergency room and Eddie was waiting for me. He said, I want my clothes. And I couldn't believe it. I stood there and I looked at him and I gave him his clothes. We dressed. He walked out of that hospital, got into the car, and we went home without saying one word to each other. I just could not believe that things had happened like this. And I walked into that room straight to the liquor cabinet back we go this same old cycle and I had given up I was sick of tired of being sick and tired and I went into the bedroom and I got down on my knees and I said God help me again and I stayed on my knees and I talked to him and I had that feeling again if you just step aside that was on February the 2nd That was the first night that I slept all night long without waking up. But I felt a relief because I knew that I had given up and I knew that God had taken over into our lives. Eddie's sobriety date is coming up real soon. And I am so grateful. I was told at Al-Anon meetings that I didn't cause it, that I couldn't control it, and that I couldn't cure it. And, you know, I thought that I caused it because Eddie was always telling me, if you'll get off my back, you know, I'll quit drinking. Or if you'll quit nagging at me, I'll quit drinking. If you'll treat me like a wife ought to treat a husband, I'll quit drinking. And I knew that I had caused it, but after attending L9 meetings, I knew that there was no way that I could cause another person to drink. Myself, yes, but not another person. And I knew that I couldn't control it because I had used everything that anybody had told me to do and the things that they hadn't told me to do. And I sure knew that I couldn't cure it. But through the Al-Nine program, I found out that I could have peace of mind and serenity. You know, God works in mysterious ways. And I don't question this. I go along with it from now on because our life has been so much better. And I get up of a morning and... I ask God for guidance for me, and I ask God for guidance for Eddie and to protect him because I do love him. At one time, I never thought of giving him any better prayer from me. But I've got to say one thing, I'll tell this, that when I had gone to al meetings quite some time, Eddie kept telling me, you don't have to go to those al meetings. I'm not an alcoholic. And I'd say, I know. And he'd say, well, what are you talking about? I said, we talk about everything. Well, who all was there? And I'd say, everybody. <laughs> and I'd give him very evasive answers. And he'd say, I don't know why you bring this literature home and lay it around. I said, because I like to read it and I like to have it where I, wherever I want to sit down and read it. And you don't have to bother about it. And so one day at the hospital, I had a phone call. And uh, it was Eddie. And he was feeling pretty good, but he said, you know, I've decided one thing. I'm going to go to an open meeting with you on Friday night, because I went to meetings every night. I went to all the open meetings, and I had some dear friends, still have some dear friends in AA, and Woody was one of them, Mary. He used to tell me I wanted too much too soon. And i think, dang, I don't know how that little son of a gun say, I want too much too soon, 15 years of it. He didn't know what he was talking about. And then I found out how great he really was. And Virgil was another one that used to have a lot of patience with me. He'd always sit by me. And Olney was another one that used to tell me, he'll make it chink in spite of you, and that'd make me so bad. (laughs) But, you know, um, I got these open meetings, and like Linda said, I got a lot out of them, and I enjoyed those. And I got to go into the dances, and Eddie would say, well, how can you go to a dance without me? And I'd say, easy. (laughs) and I'd go to those two o'clock meetings down at Kelly and he'd say why don't you stay home I said I want to but as I started to tell you a while ago Eddie called me out at the Baptist Hospital and he said I'm going to tell you something he said I'm going to go to an open meeting with you but I'm not going to sign anything I don't want anybody to know my name and I'm not giving any money (laughs) I said "All right," and I didn't really I didn't you know think too much about it because I thought you know he'll, he'll be drunk and he won't go this is the way I thought and so Monday he'd go with me, Tuesday wasn't, Wednesday was and Thursday wasn't, and then Friday I came home and he had already dressed and put on his suit and we got ready to go. We went with another lady and uh, oh a real dear lady that's an old timer and I can't think of her name. Marie. Thank you, isn't it? And so we were going down by the Paseo and we were hit broadside by well hippie. And he turned us completely around, and uh, I thought, well, I don't know why God has to be like this. That was the first thought. Why couldn't we just get to an AA meeting when Eddie has finally said he'd go? And we stood there, and Eddie said, are you hurt? And I said, no, my whole knees busted out, my wig was a little lopsided, but I said, no, I'm all right. I said, let's just get this over with and go on. And by the time we got through, it was a quarter to nine, And I know Marie and Miss Ada said, we'll go on. And I know Eddie said, oh, let's go on back home. He said, it's so late. And I said, no, Eddie, let's go on because we just have 15 minutes and we're so close. And I thought, oh, God, we're so close but so far. So we went on down and we went in the south door. And Leroy, I think this is the first time you've heard me say this, but we walked in that night and sat down and Leroy was speaking. And I stood there and I looked at him and I thought, oh, I can't believe this because I worked in the same business, Leroy, 13 years. And I didn't say anything and Eddie nudged me and he said, is that Leroy? And I said, yeah. And he said, golly. And he sat there and I thought, oh, I just know this is a night that he's going to sober up. And so when the meeting was over, I thought, yeah, we'll have to leave immediately. But at least he saw somebody he knew. Well, when the meeting was over, he took me by the hand, and I said, where are we going? He said, we're going down to speak to Leroy. You remember that, Leroy? Thrilled me to death. I started home that night, and I thought, you know, I know that we're on the road to sobriety, but we weren't. (laughs) We had a couple more years before Eddie decided that he was going to accept the program, or that he wanted it. And I had been told by AAs and l too, you know, you're not going to be the one that's going to sober this guy up. And I thought, oh, well, I'll bet y'all be in on it. But I wasn't. <laughs> I worked hard at it, but I didn't get it. You know, um, Harry, I don't think I'm going to make this full night nine, uh, 9 o'clock. You're going to have to help me, too. But I believe one thing, that but for the grace of God, in our home, that we could be dead or in a mental institution... I know that alcoholism is a progressive disease, and it's up to the alcoholic to do something about his situation, and it's up to the Al-Anon to do something about hers. I believe that through the grace of God, AA and Al-Anon, that in our home that we've found sobriety, peace of mind, and a new way of life. I don't have any advice for Al-Anons. We don't give advice, but I suggest a few things. That you go to more than just open meetings, that you attend more than one Al-Anon meeting, that you get this Al-Anon literature and study it. Don't read it, study it. And that you take part on programs and go to different groups. It is a fellowship. It doesn't mean just one little group. I think it's the best thing that's ever happened. And I've heard this said before, that if you think this program don't work, try it. If you think that God won't help you, ask him. Thank you. Thank you, Chink. That was really great. I know how to stay sober. You don't drink. You read the big book, and you go to a lot of meetings. But I haven't learned how to release people with love yet. But I'm working on it.